This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Political Podcast of the Times. I'm Matt Choi. This is a special edition recorded live at the Tory Party Conference in the London Lounge in association with the UK Spirits Alliance. I'm delighted to be joined by Liz Truss, International Trade Secretary and star of Instagram. You've got some fans. Fantastic to be here, Matt. So, Liz, let's, um, let's start with your, your new job. What is it that you see the role of being International Trade Secretary being? So I think I've got the best job in government because this is the job which is all about the upside of Brexit. It's all the new opportunities we're going to have as we leave the European Union. And there's a huge world out there which is waiting for Britain. I've just done a tour uh, around the world. I flew around the world and then even further over to New York as well. And the US... Australia, New Zealand, Japan, all of them are keen to get on with striking a new trade deal with us, which is going to mean new opportunities for British business. And I also see the role as being out there promoting free enterprise and free trade. The fact is a lot of people across the world are talking about protectionism. They're saying that trade and globalisation is bad for society. I think the opposite is true. I think the world has been improved. People have been moved out of poverty because of the power of enterprise and trade, and I'm keen to be there at the forefront of making the case for it. What is it that you think you can do in the job that Liam Fox didn't? I think it's more what can we do now, because the Prime Minister is incredibly serious about leaving the European Union on the 31st of October, and that is going to be the catalyst for being able to strike those new deals. So. Liam has done fantastic work in doing all the preparations, but it is only when we leave, it's only when we've got the freedom and flexibility to decide our own rules. And we're clear that we're not going to be aligning with European regulations, we're not going to be part of the customs union single market. It's only when you've got that flexibility and freedom that you can really achieve those deeper relationships with countries who you know, we've got a lot of common history with, countries like Australia, where we previously had very, very close ties. We can reignite those ties again. Given that it's now your job to increase trade between Britain and other parts of the world, would it be a mark of success for you in this job if we imported more cheese? (laughs) Well, trade, as you know, Matt, is all about comparative advantage. And I think every piece of British cheese has comparative advantage in the global market. Is there a finer cheese than Stilton? 
or Baron no, Bygod. There is something we can agree on. Or, or Baron Bygod or Cheddar. Neither isn't. And my argument has always been that when British products go onto the global market in a free and fair way, they are going to win because people are going to want to buy them. After we leave the EU, do you think we should keep the geographic specific protections for food like cheddar? Could we have Wisconsin cheddar arriving in the UK? Or do you think that we need to protect our British food in that well, way? I'm afraid to say that that boat has already sailed, that cheddar is now considered a generic name. What about Wensleydale then? A generic name in terms of world trade. All of these things will be matters that we will be negotiating with our trading partners. But I'm very clear that there's only one kind of Wensleydale, and that's made in Yorkshire. And I'm looking forward to visiting very soon. I've already been, you won't be surprised to hear, to see their fantastic cheese like the aged Kit Calvert, uh, a, a fantastic breed of Wensleydale. Did somebody just but clap the cheese? My view, <laughs> I, I, believe me, Matt, you will find there are a lot of cheese fans in this audience today. I brought them in specially. But, it, my, my point is that these fine British products, these fantastic British services, whether it's our insurance services, our marketing services, our financial services, the great British car, you know, our number one goods export to the US, are cars like the Mini and the Land Rover, it, these are all going to compete in the global market and they're going to succeed because they're good. Um, you talked about the tour that you uh, did, taking in half the world, it seems. Um, but it played out on Instagram. I keep reading reports that Downing Street weren't very happy with all of that. Have you had any contact with Number 10 and are happy with your well, everyone, social media Everyone helpers? I've spoken to at Number 10 is very happy that we are working to strike these new free trade deals. And Instagram is a great way of communicating. It's a brilliant way of communicating. It engages different audiences in politics. And I'm proud of the fact that I got on a bicycle in the rain in Sydney Harbour, the Brompton bike, which is the number one bike produced in this country. We produce more Bromptons than any other type of bicycle. And we're selling it across the world. And my job is to go out there making the case for British business across the world. And I'll do it in any way I like. Nobody's asked you to dial it down a bit. I'm going to dial it up, Matt. Which isn't necessarily answering the question. Um, <laughs> you're, you're a born-again Brexiteer, aren't you? Because during the referendum campaign, you, you said that people in the Leave campaign are, uh, are saying we can have our cake and eat it. We can't, you said. You said you'd rather be at the table making the decisions of other countries than walking away and not having a say. Why were you wrong then, but you're right now? I think at the time, and I did waver before making my decision about which side to back during the Brexit referendum, I didn't realise quite the catalyst Brexit would be in terms of shaping a new view of Britain. And I'm always somebody who wants things to move forward. I think we've got huge opportunities in this country and we need to make them real for people. And I now see Brexit as a catalyst that can help us achieve that. So becoming more competitive, becoming a lower tax economy, giving people in our country more opportunity, more freedom. And it, having seen what's happened with the EU since we voted for Brexit three years ago, I haven't been impressed by their attitude. We haven't seen a flexible negotiating partner wanting to do a free trade deal with us. And I think it's right that we should seek isn't that, other parts isn't of the world to do deals with. because we haven't even negotiated, the, we haven't agreed a withdrawal agreement yet. That's why we haven't gotten to a trade deal. Actually, 
the Conservative Party in the UK Parliament spent the whole time negotiating with themselves and not with the EU well, on a trade deal. There's an element of truth in that, and I think the way things have progressed over the past three years haven't been ideal. And it's one of the many reasons that I backed Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister, is Boris is somebody who can cut through that and get on to the next phase, which is what people want to see, which is taking the opportunities of Brexit. Whose fault is it that we haven't left yet? Well, there's a, there's a huge cast of characters. Uh, my personal view, and I said this at the time, is we should have left on the 29th of March. I think it was a massive mistake to delay. I think it caused a huge loss of trust with the British people. Uh, and we are you know, seeking to recover that. And it's why we can't delay any further beyond the 31st of October. But you know, this for me is a question about, are we confident about Britain's future? We're the fifth largest economy in the world. We've got all these opportunities out there. Our economy is fundamentally strong. You know, we've got the lowest unemployment since the early 70s. We should be confident about what we can achieve. We need to get on the front foot. And I think a lot of the sort of analysis paralysis that's taken place over the last three years has not got us anywhere. So I'm not into pointing fingers. All I say is now, you know, it's pretty obvious to everybody in the country, everyone I speak to in my constituency says, for God's sake, get it done so we can move on to making a success here in Britain, whether it's building more infrastructure, you know, raise, continuing to raise standards in our education system, or whether it's striking those trade deals with the rest of the world. How do we leave on October 31st, given the legislation that's been passed by Parliament? Well, the Prime Minister has been very clear we are going to leave. How I'm not going to go into the ways that could be done, Matt. Do you know? I am not party to those discussions, no. I'm very much focused on making sure that we are in a good position to strike those trade deals with the rest of the world. Given and that I have every confidence a, that, that my colleagues like the Prime Minister, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Michael Gove have got it all covered. So the team that unlawfully prorogued Parliament have definitely... <laughs> got a plan that doesn't well, break the law this time. Whilst I have massive respect for the judiciary, I don't agree with the decision the Supreme Court made. But in a way, it doesn't matter whether or not you agree with it, does it? The, the, that's what the Supreme Court ruled. And Parliament's passed a law to say we can't leave with no deal on October the 31st. How does the Prime Minister say he's going to abide by the law and ignore that law? Well, at the moment, we are focused on securing a deal with the EU. And I do think that's possible. I always felt that the reason we didn't get further concessions in advance of the 29th of March is that we didn't go close enough to the deadline. I think every dealing I've ever had with the EU when I was in DEFRA and I served on the Agriculture Council, you know, deadlines work and we need to take it to that deadline to make, to make the changes we all need. And I, you know, the EU want to get a deal ultimately. You know, they don't want this thing to drag on forever for either. So that is what we are doing and what and, we're working and, on. And do you think... If so I think minister, it's a bit unwise to talk about what if, if that doesn't so if, happen, if when the getting a deal is the first choice. gets a deal choice. and brings it back to Parliament, do you think Parliament will vote for it this time in a way they didn't three times before? Yes, I do. And that requires Labour MPs to vote for it? Yes. Do you think that what happened in the Commons last week helped win over Labour MPs to vote for the Prime Minister's deal? I think in any vote, MPs vote for you know, a combination of what they think the right thing to do is, what their constituents have asked them to do. And I think it's abundantly clear that getting on with this, supporting a deal, 
I've got every confidence Boris will only support a deal that does what he said it will do, which is give us the freedom to be able to negotiate our own trade deals and leave the EU properly. If such a deal is brought back, it will be in MPs' interest to vote for it. And if that does happen, how many trade deals have you got ready to go? How many have you negotiated? Well, we've got a number of very enthusiastic trading partners who are very keen to get started on negotiations. My top four priorities, <coughs> Australia, New Zealand, Japan and the US, and all of those are very keen to get on with it. Is it all ready to sign on the dotted line? No, there's of course a negotiation to go through and we are not going to be a pushover. We are going to be tough negotiators because we are in a very strong position. We're striking our first trade deals for 45 years. We're the fifth largest economy in the world. We have a lot of opportunities that those other nations want to access. So it's got to be in our interest to strike a deal. It's got to be in the interest of British people to strike a deal. Let's look more uh, broadly at what's happening in politics. Let's start first of all. How, how disappointed were you not to be Chancellor? <laughs> you, you talked openly well, about I'm your plans to be Chancellor with Jacob Rees-Mogg down the corridor as Chief Secretary. I'm absolutely delighted to be appointed as Trade Secretary. It's a fantastic job. It's obviously the Prime Minister's decision who he puts in his cabinet. But I'm in politics for the long term. And I'm, you know, want to do a great job at this job and see what happens next. You, would you do a better job than Sajid? I think Sajid is doing a fantastic job as Chancellor. You know, he's That's a, also not a no. He's a great, <laughs> he's a great, he's a great free marketeer. He's a great believer in Britain. He's taking a lot of the steps that frankly didn't go on in the Treasury for the past three years, like making sure we're properly prepared for no deal. And I think if you look at the team around the cabinet table, we have got a fantastic, dynamic, enthusiastic, go-getting team. And it is an absolute privilege to be part of it. One of the striking things is we had the spending round. It was slightly overshadowed by other events, but it actually involved a huge, you know, the total ending of austerity, huge amounts of public money being promised, no actual suggestion of where the money was going to come from. Does it worry you that the Tories, having spent so long hammering the fiscal responsibility line and attacking Labour for unfunded spending pledges, that you risk undoing that? Well, we had to do that spending review. You know, that we had to set budgets for schools for next year. We had to make sure that public services got the funding because we just hadn't agreed the budget, so it's necessary to do that. And I think it's right to put more money in areas like education that do need the funding. It's a vitally important part of making our economy more successful. And for me, this whole argument about public spending versus taxation. The key missing element of it is economic growth. The way that Britain is going to be more successful, that we're going to keep control of public spending, that we're going to keep raising the taxes, is growing the economy. It's about private enterprise. But it hasn't, I mean, the economy hasn't really been growing in the last three years while the country's been distracted by Brexit. Well, you're making my argument for me, Matt. That's the reason we need to get on with Brexit, get the trade deals, invest in the infrastructure, be positive and pro-enterprise, and Boris is an incredibly pro-enterprise Prime Minister. That is the way we're going to grow the economy, which will mean we've got more money to spend on public services and cutting taxes, which I think is incredibly important. Britain is only going to succeed as a low-tax economy, and it's one of the main reasons for leaving the EU, is to give us that freedom and flexibility to do things differently. 
do you think that cutting tax should be a early priority for the, the budget as and when it comes? Well, the Prime Minister's already promised in the leadership election he would cut taxes, and I think it's incredibly important because when people talk about austerity, most people across the country, as well as talking about public services, also mean their own personal, you know, what, what they're earning every month, what they're paying out every month. And it's really important that we keep taxes low and we make sure that people aren't paying too much over in taxes. Because it's businesses too, because the more money businesses can keep, the more they can invest and the more they can grow the economy. Does that include uh, an early tax cut for people earning up to £80,000? I'm, I don't think uh, Saj would be very happy if I made predictions about what he's going to put in his but budget. The, but the Prime Minister, the now Prime Minister, promised that during the leadership election. Do you think that should be an early priority? I, I know from being a Treasury Minister, taxes are a matter for the Chancellor. And what I'm very pleased is that he said a priority is, first of all, lowering taxes and secondly, making them simpler. We've got a very complicated tax system in this country. Uh, staying on tax then, what about the sugar tax? I know you're a huge fan. Well, in general, I don't believe we should moralise through the tax system. And I think that we should have taxes that are efficient, as simple as possible. And one of Boris's pledges during the leadership election was that he would review uh, so-called sin taxes. And you think that review should be with a, a view to rolling it back rather than rolling it out further? Well, my, my views on this subject are well known. I believe well, just for the benefit of anybody in the room who doesn't so know what they are. Anybody who doesn't know. Well, I believe the government should be there, first of all, to make sure that we have a safe, a safe country where people can live free lives. And I also believe that children need to be given the capability, the decision-making, to be able to make decisions. But I believe when people are adults, they should be free to live the lives that they seek to lead, they should be free to decide and determine their own future. And we shouldn't have too much of the government telling them what to do. Because I think that infantilizes people. I think we need to allow people to be able to make their own decisions. And I think that is a core part of being a conservative. So if Matt Hancock's been talking about uh, how he's now a fan again of the sugar tax. He's had a few different views on him. He's a fan again of the sugar tax. Would you be urging him not to expand it? Well, I have a very... Matt Hancock is my neighbour, just over the border in Suffolk. I get on very well with him, and I know that he's a great believer in personal freedom. Um, what about uh, ch compulsory vaccinations before children started school? Is that I, the nanny state? No, because I do, I do believe that vaccination <coughs> is incredibly important. And first of all, children and young people do need protection you know they're not adults fully capable of making their own decisions it's right they should be protected from disease and also there's a massive problem if everybody isn't vaccinated that can create problems for all of society so i'm a big supporter of our vaccination plans while we're still sort of talking about your your day job as well um it's not a great start to your uh time in the job that you've ha now had to admit to breaking the weapons exports uh, agreement. The, you, the UK appears to have accidentally sold weapons to Saudi Arabia three times. How does that happen? Well, what happened is on the 12th of September, I was alerted to the fact that our court order had been breached. These were decisions made by our joint control unit, by officials. I immediately took action. I've now made sure that any such decisions are passed by ministers 
and that full information flows across government. But as a government minister, it is your job to take responsibility for what happens in your department and to take action as soon as you possibly can to rectify matters. And I think the really important thing is that we have been completely open and transparent about what's happening. We're still conducting an internal investigation to understand what took place. And of course, I'll report back on that in due course. I just want to talk more broadly about the state of politics. Uh, well, it's all going extremely well, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> yes. Would you advise someone to go into politics now? Yes. Yeah, I don't think there's been a better time to be in politics than now. That you can't honestly believe I that. Honestly, when, when I honestly every believe MP, that. Have you had, do you have death threats and things like that? Well, I've, few people have been quite rude to me. <laughs> Not just in Times Redbox. Let me be serious. Me making let a joke me be and serious. You a death threat, let, let me be serious. So I, I grew up in the 80s and my mum was a CND activist and I used to get taken on marches and all kind of rude stuff spewed out, all kinds of horrific things people said about Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan at the time, probably which turned me into a Tory in fact. But and it, politics then, it was, it was loud, it was bolshy, it was argumentative, people were arguing about ideas. It wasn't always pleasant, of course it wasn't. But we then went through a period where there was a so-called consensus. The public often say, said to me on the doorstep, we really can't tell the difference between you and the Labour Party. There was a sense that there was a right thing to think and a wrong thing to think. And a lot of people's views in Britain just got swept under the carpet. There's a whole load of topics it wasn't acceptable to talk about. And yes, politics now is raucous. Yes, it is more lively, but we've had a huge increase in political participation. If you look at the Brexit referendum, more people have gone out to vote. And being a politician has always you know, involved an element of being on the front line. There has always been an element of difficulty. I'm not, by the way, defending anybody who has a go at politicians or, or threatens them. I think that's appalling. But that is a criminal act that should be treated as such. And you know, there are there are plenty of other professions where people are subject to danger. And of course politicians should be properly protected. But to say some of the terms that have been used in debate like surrender are somehow outrageous or should be off the table, I think it's appalling. We've always had, you know, Nye Bevan uh, described conservatives as lower than vermin. And if he'd been around in today's day and age, he would have been hauled up in front of the politically correct police telling him it wasn't acceptable to say that. And I think by removing bits of language, we really damage free speech. And we damage what is exciting and interesting about politics. Do you think that last week the Prime Minister could have done more just to turn the temperature down? I don't want to get an argument about the meaning of the word surrender, but he is the Prime Minister. His words carry more weight than a backbench Labour MP. Do you think he could have reacted differently and just turned the temperature down around the debate? But this is a hot debate. The idea that we need to calm everyone down. You know, we've had three years of trying to calm people down or trying to find agreement and it hasn't worked. Now, so it's a I deliberate think, strategy to wind people I think up the, word, the country needs to come back together no, at some point. but it's his deliberate strategy to go out there, be proud of being a conservative and take the arguments of the left on. It, there has been this kind of attitude, and this is propounded by people on the left of politics, that somehow they've got more moral virtue. That somehow it's 
you know, they have a monopoly on compassion, that they've got a monopoly on being caring, and that somehow as people on the right of politics, we should count out to them. And I think Boris Johnson is somebody who's prepared to call that out. And I think it's a good thing that he's calling that out. They don't have a monopoly on virtue. In fact, left-wing solutions leave people worse off and in more poverty than ideas like free trade and free enterprise that have lifted people out of poverty. So I think we're right to be front-footed. I was over in Australia met the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. His campaign was a positive conservative campaign. And we need to get back to that kind of politics in Britain rather than constantly triangulating, being technocratic and kind of fearing the left of politics. We've got to take them on. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You, you talked about your conversion to uh, conservatism. You sort of went via the Lib Dems. You were the president of the Lib Dems. It was a kind of gateway the Lib drug. Dems at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> um, you see, I thought they were liberal and democratic. Obviously, I was wrong, but I got taken in by the title. Uh, when you said at the Lib Dem conference in 1994, we did not believe people are born to rule and were clapped by Republicans. Do you still think that? No, I don't. I think I was wrong. But I was a, I mean, you, you could say, I was a professional controversialist in my teens. I used you to like having Still arguments. are a little bit. No, no, honestly, it's been massively toned down. I used, to, I used to like having arguments and discussions and exploring ideas. And some of the ideas I explored, I, I now think were a bit out there and I don't, I don't agree with. I'm actually a huge fan of the monarchy and I think it's an important part of stability of this country. But I think it's important that, you know, I was 19 years old at the time. I think it's important we allow people to express themselves and their ideas and it's, it's one of my great beliefs. And why I joined the Liberal Democrats is I did think they believed in freedom as a party and that is my core political, you know, lodestar. That I, I hated being told what to do I wanted freedom to live my own life as I saw fit. I didn't want to be stereotyped as a woman. I didn't want to be stereotyped as coming from the North or any, anything else. And you know, I gradually realized that the Conservative Party is actually the home for people like that, that believe, believe those things. You were, so you were a Lib Dem and then you were. You were a Republican and then you were. You were a Remainer and then you were. Is it possible that you've got this sort of state stand back let everyone just get on with themselves even if let there be winners and losers is it possible that that's wrong well i say my political views sort of went on a pathway so i started i started off with two parents who were 
active members of the nuclear disarmament movement. I then moved, you know, I thought that was wrong because I, I reacted against the political correctness at school. I was annoyed by the sort of, the idea that everybody can have prizes culture that pervaded in my comprehensive school in Leeds. It was seen as, you know, we talked about girly swats, but you were seen as a swat if you tried to do any work. And I reacted against that. I joined the Liberal Democrats because I thought they were the, well, they were the acceptable face of being right-wing in North East Leeds. I mean, I literally <laughs> didn't know any Tories. A lot of my teachers were card-carrying members of the Labour Party. And then I, then I became a Conservative and absolutely loved it. Yeah. I found people that I agreed with, that I could relate to. And I've been a member of the Conservative Party since I was 21. Uh, and uh, finally, before I open it up to questions, um, have you all been told to mention Venezuela in your speeches? <laughs> because I, I don't believe that anyone outside the Westminster bubble knows what you're talking about. Talking about Caracas and Venezuela. Are you saying people don't know where Venezuela is? I just, think, I think, it, I just think it's a bit of an odd thing to keep talking about. Well, the, uh, all our speeches are written independently. The point I was making so you've all is that the Labour Party... Seriously, that Jeremy Corbyn refused to vote for a trade deal with Canada and Japan, but the left of the Labour Party are prepared to do deals with Venezuela. You know, it shows where their priorities are, which is not with free, free market uh, democracies, it's with autocracies. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about, just going right back to almost the beginning, in Instagram and uh, social media and some of the, the threats that people have been having, that sort of thing. Do you think that those social media companies could do more to clamp down on that? At what point does the need for regulation override the right to freedom of speech? Well, I'm generally wary of saying we should do things that could limit freedom of speech. They look at what the Chinese government do with their internet and how they limit the ability of people to react against the government. And I think that's very worrying. And I don't want to live in a society where the government controls what is passed through the media. I do, however, think that we need to protect children. And I think that's where the line is for me on internet use for example so you know the ages that people are able to sign up for particular sites you know that that concerns me you think it should be higher but i think when it's when it's, it's adults, like 13 14 yeah exactly and i you know i worry about teenagers in particular and the impact it can have on them i've got a do two daughters aged 10 and 13 that concerns me but i think grown adults you know should be able to do and say things that we might not all like, but do, do allow them to sort of express themselves and, and make things change. To enforce that, presumably you'd have to upload your driving licence or passport, and then you wouldn't have these anonymous accounts in the way that we do at the moment. I think there is a role even for anonymity in some quarters. Okay. Um, and just finally, it's Sunday night at Tory party conference, Parliament's sitting on Monday. Have you got a helicopter on standby? No, I've got a virgin train on standby. Do you think you'll be rushing back to Westminster? Uh, who knows, but I've got a full schedule of events tomorrow, which I'm very keen to do here. Finally, going up in a helicopter in this weather, I think, would be a lively experience. Um, uh, my huge thanks to Liz Truss. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.